Are you the quantum mechanics? Yes, we are the quantum mechanics, the paranormal podcast for the believers, the doubters, and everybody in between. I think I'm a bit of an in between today. I don't know why. I'm just feeling like I'm in between. You're in between. In I think between, I'm so. in between. Yeah. I say again, this leads into a paranormal weather update. The weather's a bit in between as well, isn't it? It is in between. Grey yeah. skies, little bit windy, but not much going on. I was thinking before we came on what kind of paranormal thing it represents, but I couldn't really think of one. I think it's like um, a miserable elf. Yeah, it is a miserable elf. Or, oh, actually, maybe, or that moment about an hour before a zombie herd comes walking through. Oh, what do you call that period? Yeah. A kind of in-between period. <laughs> <laughs> the pre-zombie period. We yeah. all know the pre-zombie yeah. period. Pre-apocalypse rather than post-apocalypse. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah maybe. that's true. Um, I don't know how I can segue into the episode from that. <laughs> um, but today I wanted to talk about the connections between dreams and extrasensory perception. ESP to you and me, Ben. ESP, yeah, to, to those professionals. Yes, to us to us in the know. Okay, that's interesting. So, um, in a nutshell, that is being able to predict things through your dreams. Correct. Right. And, uh, well, let's start. That's a good place to start. Let's start with a definition of what ESP is. And this is from, I, I hadn't come across this book before, but in my research I came across it. It's from a well-respected book, which apparently is used by many colleges and universities, called An Introduction to Parapsychology by Harry Irvin and Caroline Watt. Now, their definition of ESP is an extra, extrasensory experience in, is one in which it appears that the experienced mind has acquired information directly that is seemingly without the mediation of recognised human senses or the process of logical inference. So that's a bit of a word salad, but basically... I think they are saying the person has acquired accurate information that they shouldn't be able to possess through logical means. Yeah, that makes sense. I get it. So this includes telepathy, clairvoyance, knowledge of future events, so precognition, or retrocognition, which is knowledge of past events. I see, I see. And it could be something really small. Yep. Um, or it could be... You know, the end of the world or a football match or something like yeah, that. Yeah, there's a real range of stuff, definitely. Right. Um, I think this phenomenon is particularly interesting when it comes to the dream states because I was thinking about the subconscious nature of a dream. So, you know, there's no way that you could be influenced from kind of cold reading or a logical interpretation of something to influence, a, let's say, a, a prediction. Do you know what I mean? When you're in a dream yeah. state, you've got... I know there are parts of the dream cycle where you can control what you, you're dreaming, but not not in terms of the test that I'm going to talk about. The, the, most of them take part in REM sleep, which you've got no control over, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's something pure about it. Do you, do you know what I'm saying with that? I do, yes, yes. Now, there are some famous examples of premonition in dreams. We've talked before on the podcast about the Aberfan mining disaster in Wales in oh, 1966. Yeah. So as a way of a summary, this is where 144 people were killed in a landslide from a coal mine. The majority of those sadly killed were children from a local school. One of the victims of the disaster, 10-year-old Errol May Jones, had a dream two nights before the disaster telling her mother that she dreamt of going to school, but it was gone because something black was covering it. She also told her mother she was not afraid to die. Two days later, the school was engulfed by an avalanche of black coal dust and rock from the mine, and Errol May Jones sadly did lose her life. Um, we've covered that story before on an episode called The Premonitions Bureau and Me, I think was the title. Mm -hmm. So if you want to... Go and check that out. I mean, it's fascinating, the whole Premonitions Bureau. We'll mention it a little bit later as well. But um, that's a really famous example of a dream that was a some kind of premonition of the events that were going to happen a couple of days later. Yeah, and also, 
Yeah, just horribly tragic as well. A really tragic, a really tragic disaster. And, you know, if the, the more you research it, it was preventable because it was basically the the waste product from the coal mine being put into these slag heaps, which became too big and too unstable. So it was a disaster waiting to happen. And then there was heavy rain and, very, yeah, it's yeah, it's a yeah. terrible it's a terrible story. There is also the case of Sharon Tate, the famous Hollywood actor and wife of movie director Roman Polanski, who was brutally murdered in her home by members of the Manson family cult in 1969. Uh, it's a very famous story, and obviously that um, was re-envisioned and <laughs> recreated in a parallel universe by Quentin Tarantino and with Brad Pitt starring in the movie. Now, it has been reported that Sharon Tate predicted her own murder while in a semi-dream state a full two years before it occurred. Oh, I didn't know that. No, I, I hadn't come across this before, but the story goes, while she was falling asleep at her then-boyfriend's house, this is two years before the murder, she sensed a strange man into the bedroom. She believed it was the former owner of the house that she was in, a man called Paul Byrne, who had committed suicide several years earlier. So, obviously, this terrified Sharon Tate, and she ran out of the bedroom and downstairs. But on the way, she was greeted by another weird apparition. There were on the stairs was the figure of someone with their throat cut. So, after this chilling dream-like apparition, Tate became convinced that the figure with its throat cut was actually her, and this was some kind of premonition. Why would why was she convinced of that then? I'm not sure. I I haven't got into detail. I don't know if it was just something about the way this apparition looks, or whether it was just a sense that she had that that's me. Well, that's that's also disturbing. Yeah, really. Two years later, Sharon Tate, who was 26 years old at the time, was stabbed to death by several members of the Manson family while she was in the home she shared with Roman Polanski. The story of her predicting her own death has been confirmed by friends of Tate, who she told in the two years between the dreamlike premonition and her actual murder. Hmm. Let's look at another example. Now, Ben, this isn't for the first time that we've featured this person on the podcast. It's a story of a precognition dream involving Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> <laughs> he gets into everywhere. He's everywhere, dreams. isn't he? <laughs> He's as a ghost, he's in dreams. Yeah, he's, he's, he's all over the place. But according to Lincoln's friend and bodyguard, Ward Hill Lamont, Lincoln had a dream a few days before his death that predicted his own assassination. In the dream, it is claimed that Lincoln walked into the East Room of the White House where soldiers and mourners were surrounding a dead body. In the dream, Lincoln asked one of the soldiers who had died and was told it was the president and that they'd been killed by an assassin. Oh. A couple of days later, the president was indeed assassinated by John Wilkes Booth at the Falls Theatre in Washington. Yeah. Gosh, OK. I didn't know that either. And there's, there's evidence that he did tell people this. Well, OK, that is a very good point, Ben, because there are some serious doubts about this dream, uh, where he predicts his own death and whether it is actually true. It took the teller of the story, Ward Hill Lamont, 20 years to come forward with it, which has raised concerns about its veracity. Mm, yeah. Others have claimed that Lincoln did indeed have the dream, but that Lincoln did not believe the dead body was him or the President of the United States. Right, OK, OK. So it was embellished. Embellished, and then there is probably better evidence of it not being true. There are accounts from members of Lincoln's cabinet that he did indeed have a dream just before his death, which he told them about. But this dream had nothing to do with death or assassinations. In this dream, Lincoln described sailing at speed over a body of water. This was a reoccurring dream that he apparently had on a number of occasions. I see, okay. And that kind of got me thinking, Ben. We've discussed these stories on the podcast before. It's really hard to know if facts have been distorted or changed over time, right? Yes, yeah, because um, in case of a death, it has to be reported by a third party. Yeah, definitely. So I guess the Tate one makes more sense because there are a number of friends who've said it, but in terms of the Lincoln one, there's at best contradictory um, evidence of what went on. Um, 
So, yeah, it is really hard to discern truth from the myth, right? And as with topics we've covered, you're, you're left thinking that these stories are really interesting, but if only there was some kind of scientific study of this dream ESP phenomenon we could look at, right? Oh, if only. If only. Do you have a premonition where I'm going next, Ben? <laughs> <laughs> hey, you've got one. It is going to be done by Dr. Unpronounceable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah of there is a bit of that. Yeah. Um, so I went in search to see if I could find scientific studies of extrasensory perception in dreams, and I found this article uh, in Psychology Today. I'm just going to read this. The most extensive studies on precognition in dreams were carried out by the research group at the Maimonides Hospital in New York. In these studies, a sender attempted to send images to a receiver who slept in another room and whose sleep was recorded with standard EEG leads. When the sleeper entered REM sleep, they were awakened and reported whatever they had dreamt. Independent judges, blind to the purpose of the procedures of the experiment, then took the dreams and judged if they contained any of the images sent to the sender. The experiments were monitored by independent observers and professional magicians to make sure there was no possible leakage occurring between the experimenters, the sender and the receiver. That's a great job for a magician. Yeah, that's good, isn't it? I it's like better that. than a kid's party. I yeah, like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Subsequent analysis of hits rates yielded highly significant results. Dream imagery very frequently contained images sent by the sender. Further studies in other labs involved the dreamer attempting to dream about a target that would be random selected, randomly selected once he woke. Once again, hit rates were far beyond chance levels. Now, I thought I needed to delve a bit deeper into this study because this was just a kind of overview in so you went to bed <laughs> yeah so i went to bed and tried to get somebody to send it to me <laughs> okay we love an academic paper on this podcast don't we it, this is kind of um every time you, you know you're looking at uh, something really peculiar and you go is there a scientific paper i get really surprised that there is yeah i get really excited when i find a good one as well and this yeah. one is a good one so I'm going to, a lot of the information which I'm going to talk about from now on does come from this paper, um, or at least, it, you know, like with those papers, it leads you in a direction to review other material. So, yeah. so this is the base of it. It's an academic paper by Chris Rowe and Simon Sherwood from the Psychology Division of University College Northampton. The paper is titled, A Review of Dream ESP Studies conducted since the Maimonides Dream ESB program. ESP program, I should say. Okay, that's a promising start. So this peer-reviewed paper was published in the Journal of Consciousness Studies in 2003. That's the other thing. It's like the, the, the amount of weird journals that are out there. We've had a few from the, that Journal of Consciousness Studies. Oh, have studies. we? Yeah, I remember coming across that and thinking... Oh, I wish I worked on that journal. It sounds really interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd love to have a little business card with Journal of Consciousness Studies on it. Yeah, exactly. So the paper starts by going into some background and detail of the Maimonides Dream ESP study. Psychiatrist Montague Ullman, good name, don't you think? Montague Ullman? Yeah, Ullman. Oh, oh, no, oh, right. Uh, not, uh, not the no, nut. Not the nut, no. But, but probably was con confused with the nut at some point. Yeah. I bet he got bank statements occasionally addressed to Mr. Ullman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And being a psychiatrist... It drove you, him nuts. Yeah, being a psychiatrist, <laughs> you really don't want to be called a nut, do you? No, no, no. no. <laughs> so uh, Montague Ullman established a dream laboratory at the Maimonides Medical Centre in Brooklyn in 1962. Before the laboratory closed in 1978, his research team had conducted 13 formal dream ESP studies and three groups of pilot sessions. Of the 13 formal studies, 11 were designed to investigate telepathy and two precognition. The pilot sessions were designed to investigate clairvoyancy, telepathy and precognition respectively. Now, the Maimonides procedure was developed and improved over time and a number of different procedural variations were explored. Should we go into how the experiments worked? Yeah, I want to know about the clairvoyancy. Yeah. 
So the receiver, so I guess this is the person who's going to be dreaming, was attached to monitoring equipment, such as an EEG monitor. They slept in a soundproof room in the laboratory. Once the receiver was asleep, a target was chosen from a random set of images. Usually these were art prints chosen for their emotional intensity, vividness and colours. Once a target image was chosen, it was placed in a sealed envelope and given to the sender. The sender was locked in a separate soundproof room, often in another building. Is this reminding you of anything? I'm thinking about the Yuri Geller experiment. Yeah, exactly. So once the receiver entered REM sleep, the sender received a signal via a buzzer. They then opened the sealed envelope and began to concentrate on sending the target image to the sleeper who was receiving it. Which is just them thinking about it really hard, I presume. Yeah, it was a bit like how we did when we did that first remote viewing oh, test, yeah. isn't it? Mm-hmm. Do you remember? We were looking at a photo and I was we were doing it over Zoom and yeah. I was sending it to you, Miles. Sounds very similar. So when the EEG showed the sleeper was no longer in REM sleep, they were awakened and asked to describe their dream, which was recorded and transcribed. The sender was told about the content of the sleeper's dream so they could adapt or continue with their sending strategy. I'm not sure how they varied it. It doesn't go into detail of that. So basically, when the dreamer woke up, um, they basically went back to the sender and kind of said, well, he's got this or he's got that. Try something different. But obviously, the receiver didn't know any of that. No, right, I see. Um, The receiver then went back to sleep to continue the experiment. The process was repeated for each REM sleep cycle, with the same visual target being sent each time. In the morning, the receiver was asked to guess what the target might be. They were shown between 8 and 12 pictures, one of which was the target, and asked to rank them in order. The dream transcripts and the 12 pictures were sent to independent judges, who, based on the transcript, rated the 12 pictures in terms of accuracy. So they didn't know what the target was. They just had to rate them on the dreamer's description of the dreams. So that I guess that's the control group, effectively. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. If the dreamer had ranked the target picture in the top half of the 12 images, so between one and six, they were described as a hit. If they were in the bottom half, they were described as a miss. Calculation of the results were made and compared with the statistical probability that the results could be produced by chance. Seems logical, right? Absolutely. In later studies, they tried different methodologies, varying the sending period and not always waiting for REM sleep. I like some of the names they gave some of these latter experiments. One was called Sensory Bombardment Study. (laughs) Sounds slightly violent. And this kind of is a bit of a throwback to last week's episode. One was called the Grateful Dead Study. Oh, yeah, you mentioned that you come across that. Yeah, so this is where, this is brilliant, 2,000 people at a Grateful Dead concert all acted as the sender. No. (laughs) Oh, my God. That's a, I can't believe this guy is like a proper (laughs) scientist. Yeah. You imagine Jerry Jerry Garcia coming up, going, oh, uh, crowd, we just got something for you to do. (laughs) I bet they'd have loved that. Oh, can you imagine? Because they're slightly altered states anyway. It'd been hilarious. It would. What a great idea, though, the Grateful Dead study. I don't know. I I couldn't find any details of how that one worked. But um, So as the experiments progressed, they made the targets more complex using slideshows, videos and audio soundtracks, which the sender would again try and relay to the sleeping receiver. Should we get into the results, Ben? Oh, yes. I I just tried to imagine what that... um the Grateful Dead one was. Sorry, my brain was still there. Like you're still there. I mean, that must have been he might have known, like Jerry, and said, yeah. "Do you mind if we do?" He gets everywhere, Jerry Garcia, doesn't he? God, him and Abraham Lincoln are ubiquitous. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's probably where the slim similarities end. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> they both had hair. Yeah. Well, Lincoln was a great guitar player. No, I made that. Um, so let me start with a quote from the original paper produced by the scientists involved in the study. So this is their conclusion. They say, the outcome is clear. Several segments of the data considered separately yield significant evidence that the dreams and associations to them 
tended to resemble the pictures chosen randomly as targets more than the assembled other pictures in the pool. That's interesting. The meta-analysis of 450 Maimonides ESP trials found a success of the sleeping receiver's hit rate at identifying the sender's image at 63%. Goodness. The control group, or blind judges, as they described them, achieved 50%, which I guess you would just get by chance alone, right? Yeah, yeah. So in the control group, they had no sender? No. What the control group would basically look at the transcript of what the person had dreamt and try and match it to the pictures. Oh, I see, I see. Um, so so we end up with 63% success rate compared to the control group of 50%. The odds of achieving this were calculated at 74 million to one. Goodness. Goodness. That's incredible, isn't it? It is. Yeah. I mean, so this must have encouraged them in getting more funding. And Yes. Well, it's interesting you say that. We'll come on to that in some of the critics of this study. Um, so if we go back to the academic paper, the review paper by Sherwood and Rowe, they say the main criticisms of the original study are as follows. Firstly, the raw data for the original experiment is no longer available. So it makes it difficult to assess the accuracy of the claims. In the early tests, there were concerns of leakage or contamination of the control group, I guess possibly inadvertently gaining information about the targets, which may have influenced their decisions-making process. I wondered if that was kind of like pareidolia effect, right? So if you've got a vague knowledge of what the target would be and you're in the control group, you might confirm something as a hit that wasn't. Yeah, I see what you mean, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of um, human vagaries involved here, I guess. But they do point out in the review paper that the experimenters, after these, this was in the first couple of tests, they did tighten their procedures. Uh, and although the hit rate went down, it was still statistically significant. Okay. Well, that's everything they're looking for, statistically significant. Yeah. Now, you you hinted at funding a minute ago, and there has been some criticism of the original study linked to fraud. I guess tweaking the results to obtain more funding. But to quote the academics, Sherwood and Rowe, no plausible mechanism for fraud has been forwarded. So this is more a kind of rumour and an accusation. There's nothing to back that up. And perhaps intellectual jealousy. Possibly, yeah, or or even this can't be true, so I'm not believing it. There must right, be yeah, right. yeah, yeah, that happens a lot, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So given the results of this original experiment, unsurprisingly, others have tried to replicate the results. I'm going to run through a few of these. So during the 1960s and the 1970s, there were six attempts, seven by researchers at other laboratories, to replicate the Maimonides dream, Maimonides dream telepathy findings, again using EEG monitoring and deliberately waking people up when they're in REM sleep. Uh-huh. None of them were exact replicas, but they were pretty close. So let's take a look at some of these. The first is from 19... The first I'm going to talk about is from 1972, called the Folks et al. study, which did involve some of the researchers from the original Maimonides study. This new study took place over 14 nights and involved pairs of friends. In this case, the sender would act out a scene portrayed in the target image. So I guess if they would, the, the picture was driving a car, the sender would literally pretend to be driving a car. Right, yeah, yeah. In addition to REM sleep, they looked at the hypnagogic sleep state as well. So that's the one just before you drop off to sleep. So lots of people who try lucid dreaming, that's, that's the state you're in when you do that, that, mm-hmm. that half-awake, half-sleep state. So the results in this study would deem no better than one would get from chance alone. That's disappointing. Yeah. There's another test known as the Strauch study that was conducted in 1970. Saw each participant spend three nights in a laboratory with their dreams being monitored on the second and third night. Now, the results of this test, Ben, reminded me of the Premonitions Bureau that we mentioned earlier. So just to recap, the Premonitions Bureau was an idea set up by a psychologist 
after these strange premonitions he witnessed after the Aberfan mining disaster. He, in conjunction with the newspaper, set up a team to monitor people's predictions of natural disasters. Now, at the Premonitions Bureau, I think if you remember, statistically, the results were no better than chance, right? Yeah, yeah. However, there were two participants who had an uncanny ability to predict disasters, often in great detail. Right, yeah. They, they, they were the super predictors or something. I seem to remember they had that name. Yeah, something like that. So the results of this Strauss study in 1970 seem remarkably similar. Overall, the dream receivers didn't do better than by chance alone. Apart from, according to some reports, there were a couple of participants who, let's say, had an uncanny hit rate. Mm. Which I thought was fascinating. Which sort of tells you that maybe it's like just... I don't know, we talk about people having... Uh, super abilities, maybe they're mediums or something. Like Yuri Geller, whether you believe him or not, you know, he might be one of those people who has super ESP uh, abilities. Because you also did um, an episode about a certain group of people living on a Scottish island. That's right, yeah. Who had super ESP abilities. Yeah, yeah, they were all within a really small community, weren't they? Yeah, which means that maybe there's a genetic. Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, there was another study, it was a slightly earlier study, by Hall in 1967, and that seems to have produced similar results, the most successful participant being someone called Van der Castle. In the report of the study, Hall concluded, I quote, This result shows that it is possible to influence dreams telepathically, even under artificial experimental circumstances. Hmm. Okay, that's his conclusion. Yes, and the study has, just on the the other side of it, the study has been criticised by some academics for lacking adequate controls against sensory leakage, and it did involve arbitrary selection of data for analysis. So that, you know, again, there are, there are issues. There's variables which are hard to control. Yeah. Yeah. Interestingly, the successful participant in this study went on to conduct their own non-laboratory telepathy dream experiment in 1971, the Van der Castle study, which involved a group of youth camp members. This is quite interesting. <laughs> okay. In this study, Van der Castle selected a colour magazine picture and gave it to a camp staff member. Through the night, this member of staff acted as the sender and campers acted as the receiver. So in the morning, yeah. in the morning, a bit like the original Maimonides study, the campers were asked to rank a number of photos, one of which was the target. I see. The results were quite astonishing. There were 95 hits of the target and only 55 misses. But had they been talking to each other? Had they... No, no, oh. no. So, so that is considerably higher than could be achieved by chance. <laughs> You're right to look for a problem in this study, and it's, it's a really funny, weird one. It's a sticky problem with this study not being conducted in lab conditions, and it's connected to the target photo. This, this photo was handled by the experimenter and the sender prior to being included in the non-target images. It is possible that the target pictures may have had marks or fingerprints on it that gave a clue to those ranking the pictures. Oh, right. So, I don't know. You've been to a campsite. Anybody who's eaten a schmore could see how this could happen, right? Yes, yes. But then, yeah, so people are like, oh, it's obviously that one, I'll say that one. Yeah, or even subconsciously, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Because there is that thing about trying to please, isn't there, in these days? There is, there is. Oh, that's such a... Whoever designed the experiment, that's such a a flaw that could have easily been avoided. Yeah. Now, most of these studies try to basically replicate that original Maimonides study. However, late studies tried different methodologies... I want to talk about two studies by someone called Broad, the first in 1977. Participants in this study slept in their own homes, waking naturally and journaling their dreams. Fifty friends and acquaintances kept a diary for the dates of the trial. Between 2am and 2.30am, Broad sent a randomly selected target slide, 
participants mark their dreams for the presence or absence of 10 features. So I think that's an interesting way of doing it. Hmm. In terms of proving the connection between ESP and dreams, <laughs> this study could only be described as a disaster. <laughs> oh. Of the 50 participants, only three correctly identified more than the control group. So and what was the reason for this? It just didn't work. Didn't work. But interestingly, Brawl didn't give up. <laughs> he wasn't undeterred. He adapted the experiment, reducing the sample to 10 close friends, testing six different targets over three days, using times that were likely to coincide with Dreamer's REM cycle. So this comes into it. Seven of the 10 receivers responded to the test, this time producing a mean score of 6.33. I don't know what that ranks again, but it's significantly higher than the control group. So this one works. Now, according to Chris Rowe and Simon Sherwood's review paper that I've been using, which has more detail of other trials as well, they state, in summary, broad studies suggest that although both HG, so that's pre-dream, mm -hmm. and dream mentation might be conducive to telepathy, it depends on which part of the dream cycle you are in. So this, it seems connected with REM, basically, is what they're saying. Right, okay. So there's also a similar study by Wiener and McCann that seems to back this up. So I thought that's fascinating. It implies the best time for ESP in dreams is in the REM state. I was also left thinking, Ben, that not everyone can do it. You know what I mean? Certain people seem more attuned or better than others, like the Premonition Bureau. Mm. Now... I know we've been going through a number of studies, but I felt it was important. One, because I was amazed at the amount of scientific research that's gone on into this topic, which is unusual for things we cover, right? Yeah, yeah, very much. I found the studies fascinating. Some were flawed, some were inconclusive, but kind of many leave you scratching your head, right? But then I did start to think about bias, whether unconscious or otherwise. Did these researchers want an outcome that proved the connection between ESP and dreams? Which drew me to another study by Marwick and Beloff, that, two studies actually, one in 1983 and one in 1988. Now, from my research on Marwick and Beloff, they could both be described as sceptics. They conducted their experiments with an open mind, but I think it's fair to say that they were expecting to prove that there was no link between ESP and dreams. They conducted a hundred trial dream tests, testing for clairvoyancy, telepathy and precognition. Randomly selected target pictures were placed in a box by Beloff. Marwick acted as the receiver. I think one of them was like in London and one of them was in Edinburgh, so they weren't even close to either. Oh, wow. Marwick acted as the receiver, only recorded selected dreams and hyper... I can never say this word. Hypnagogic imagery. Uh, and then they ranked them against a set of five possible targets. Now, after 64 of the 100 trials, Marwick suffered a crisis in their personal life, which is believed to have affected the final 36 trials. So I don't know what that crisis was, but, you know, they continued with the test, but I think that Marwick was struggling with some personal issue. Right, right. However, in the first 64 trials, Marwick's hit rate was significantly better than chance. Chris Rowe and Simon Sherwood's review paper says of the Marwick and Beloff trial, the significant finding is of particular interest given that it was obtained by sceptically minded subjects working under ultra-rigorous regime with a reputed negative experimenter. Interesting. They concluded that further research was needed and that as long as controls are in place, that home dream studies could be a cost-effective way of continuing research. So I thought that was really interesting, that that one, you've got two people who are sceptics who almost set out to prove no connection and came away going, oh, OK. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so... Um what was what were they up to before? Were they just um, 
sort of general academic folk or did they have a specific interest in i think most of the people who've conducted these tests have kind of had an interest in psychology and the link with parapsychology i see i see i think these guys were were psychologists right right um i thought it was interesting as well that home research might be a good place to do it not just from a cost-effective point of view but i thought i wondered if because you are in a more relaxed open-minded state it might make it better a bit like when we did remote viewing do you know what i mean it's like you need to relax being yeah. a kind of you know quiet space rather than you know noisy spot or whatever so i thought that was interesting yeah so these these two people came away believing at some level there might be a connection between esp and dreams and so I suppose that leads on to, does anybody sort of, is there a mental model of how it might work? No, there, a, a bit, it reminded me so much of remote viewing, do you know what I mean? There was no, I found no description of why this worked, you know what I mean, if it did work, but certainly, no, if, and that, it's almost hard to accept that, isn't it? I always find that with remote viewing and yeah, the people it's we've unsatisfying. interviewed with remote viewing going... I mean, I know when we interviewed Daz Smith, um, he talked about potential, you know, quantum entanglement and things like that, but it, it's all it's all just a thought rather than anything that's provable. Yeah, that's true. I mean, in this case, I can... Well, in fact, in both cases, uh, for remote viewing... And for this, I can imagine evil, an evolutionary advantage. Like, if you are trying to see problems in a different way, you need to understand what the problems are around you. I'm sort of imagining being in a tribal scenario. Yeah. And therefore, if the problems of the tribe are also your problems, because you're acting collectively, then being able to perceive them in a dream and perhaps run through a scenario could be... Could be useful. It could be useful, yeah. And then, again, with remote viewing, the similar thing, if you're in a in a conflict uh, or a competition for food or something, again, I could see how that would be useful. But it's so mind-blowing to kind of go, yeah, it would be useful, but how? How? Yeah, yeah. And then you sort of, you have to really butt up against your own prejudices because... Cause you can, I just can't imagine a, a a mechanic where this is this is viable. Well, it also the other thing I guess the big difference between these studies and remote viewing. I mean, the similarities are a sender or a receiver, but in these dream studies, the sender was actively trying to signal or send the image, which is not the case in the re, you know the pure remote viewing we've done. It's it's a picture in an envelope with a with a number. So when Daz Smith set us those targets, you know, he wasn't sitting at home going, I'm going to send them the Statue of Liberty. It was just something in an envelope. Whereas in these studies, you know, you've literally got some of them where somebody's acting out what's, what's on a picture. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, it makes sense to other areas as well. Like um, when people get visitations from their loved ones after they've died in their dreams. Not to say immediately that isn't true, I'm not saying that, but it would make sense if other people are thinking about Great Aunt Maud who passed over. Mm. It might make more sense in this scenario that you dream about her, if you see what I mean. A bit of a collective consciousness right. thing going yeah. on that almost the the ambient noise <laughs> That's right. affects what you're dreaming. That's right. Yeah, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So has anybody tried, like like with remote viewing, where it's been uh, almost sort of commercialised, has anyone, I mean, I can't think of a use for this really, apart from no. a personal sort of emotional use? Well, in the review, it seems like, I, I haven't found more modern reviews. It seemed to, you know, obviously that original study in the 1960s led to a wave of them in the 1970s, you know, there are studies going into the 1980s and 1990s, but it, it almost seems to have died a death in terms of research after that. You know, may, may, maybe like you said, because it is, maybe people do think it's a bit out there. And um, yeah, apart from 
knowledge and you know for me i'd be like let's do some research into it because it seems fascinating especially if you can prove that through sending this stuff and projecting it some way into the dreamer's consciousness that you do produce results that are significantly higher than you would through chance then that seems like an interesting thing to look into but i guess things don't work that way people want practical applications to research i guess yeah, yeah, because I, I would struggle to know. Once you sort of proved it's statistically viable, you go. <laughs> then what? Um, yeah, I mean, you could turn it into therapy programs, but yeah, but it is. It does show show there's something else. You know, there's a there's another thing at play with the the human brain, and perhaps it shows that it isn't just a meat computer. Perhaps it shows that it's assimilating thoughts and knowledge from somewhere else. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think it's worth... Let me just um, give you Sherwood and Rose, so the, the review paper. That, yeah. That, let me give you their conclusion, because I think it's really interesting. They say, Our review has shown that Dream ESP remains a promising, if somewhat neglected, area for parapsychological research. Combined effect size for both the Maimonides and post-Maimonides studies suggests that judges may be able to correctly identify targets more that often than would be expected by chance using dream mentation. There is evidence of conceptual replication within both sets of studies, although this seems to be concentrated within certain research teams. Overall, the Maimonides studies were more successful than the post-Maimonides studies, but this may be due to procedural differences. There is a need for meta-analysis of the experiential dream ESP literature, not only to provide an estimate of the overall effect size, but also to identify process-orientated factors that might influence study outcomes. We hope that future researchers will also note some of the methodological shortcomings we've identified and address these in their study design. Home dream ESP research is less expensive and less labour-intensive to sleep laboratory-based research merits further investigation. We hope this review will help... I see what they did here. Reawaken interest in this neglected but promising paradigm. Oh, look, just stick to being a scientist. Leave the pun out of it. <laughs> yeah, leave the. That's our job. <laughs> uh, we we take your work and put a pun in. So I kind of I felt at the end of my journey into this subject, I, I think their summary is quite good. So the original Maimonides studies, yeah, it seemed to have its flaws. But man maybe ended up exaggerating the results. But it did seem to suggest there is a connection between ESP and dreams. Subsequent studies, I guess, highlighted the difficulties of doing this kind of research, but were either inconclusive or reinforced some of the stuff that was uh, come across in the results of the original study. I'm just struck by the two sceptics who came to the conclusion that there could be a connection between ESP and dreams. Yeah, and that's, yeah. and that's what I've been left with, that there is something going on here that needs looking at. Yeah, I... It's The trouble is, it's so nebulous, and it's about people. It's very much, like, I think it's... There's a little bit of a parallel between that and, say, what, um, what studies into not just remote viewing, but into paranormal phenomena in general are like... It, is, it relies on human-level reporting. Yeah. And again, you can find one little flaw in an experiment and you can argue to the death whether that is a flaw or if it isn't. I would imagine it's incredibly difficult to design a completely watertight experiment, specifically because um, dreams are very subjective as well. Although I know this was about images as well, but... Mm. It's the way you describe it. If I describe what I the images in my sleep last night, I think you could draw those in a thousand different ways, depending on what you think I'm saying in the words. Mm. But well, I, yeah. I guess that was why there was criticism of some of the control groups in this. That if there was leakage or <laughs> fingerprints <laughs> all over the pictures, I had no leakage in my dreams. Yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> that if there are those kind of clues, even the control group gets influenced. Goes, yeah, there's a hit. They've got that one, you know what I mean? Because, again, there's this desire to want to please, isn't there? 
but I, I think what's interesting when you when you look back at this as an area of study, it does seem like there is a purely scientific way of analysing this against, you know, chance and a control group, which in a lot of the topics we cover, that's pretty hard to to almost structure an experiment that works that way. But this and remote viewing seem similar. And I, I did make me think, I, I haven't researched it yet, but I wonder if there's been similar studies into remote viewing. Because we've kind of engaged with the remote viewing world and they've been really great to us. And we've certainly come away with experiences that have made us gone, that's a bit of a head scratcher. Oh, 100%. Absolutely. But I would like to know if there are, you know, these kind of laboratory-style studies. But then you kind of think that if the military stuck with it for so long, they must have done those kind of studies, surely. Yeah, I mean, there are... I mean, we we covered the Uri Geller ones, which are the most exp- uh, uh, famous. Um, I'm sure there are others, and they are more... Um, they would be more specific, I guess. But, like, I mean, they happen all the time. And the fact that someone like Daz gets paid to do it, you wouldn't get paid if it didn't work. So, yeah, you know, that way, it's kind of like, that is, it's almost, in my mind, the remote viewing, it's not even a question anymore. It absolutely works. Yeah. I wish I, well, the only question is, I just want to know how now. Yeah, yeah. And I, I wonder if that's, I mean, that's the difficult thing. It's, you know... It's like with the dream ESP thing. It's like it feels like there needs to be more studies to go. Does it work? Certainly, the amount of studies that have been done have leaned towards proving that it does. But then you do have to get into these areas of unconscious bias. You know, of somebody just wanting that to be the case. You know, but um, yeah. But yeah, I, I think it is possible to do this in a scientific way. And uh, certainly if anyone's listening and knows about modern day studies into this phenomenon, I'd love to know about it because it's fascinating. This, this kind of stuff really fascinates me. Yeah, me too. Yeah, that is really, really, really interesting. I had no idea about any of that. Um, it didn't even occur to me that it was a thing until you mentioned it. The power of dreams. Yeah, yeah. That's brilliant. Yeah. Um, thank you very much. Well, uh, it sort of it brings new meaning to um, why last night I dreamt about a Kit Kat that was the size of my car. Genuinely, I did. <laughs> did you? I did. Yeah. Was yeah. it, was it a, an old school Kit Kat? Was it the foil or was it? It was non-foil? the old school with foil, but oh, that would have been satisfying running your fingernail down was, that huge foil. It was yeah. orange flavour. But yes, you're right, the foil mm. would have been good. But it was absolutely huge, and the the reason uh, I remember it was because I was thinking, I could never eat that. And, and my partner, she said, well, I reckon you could, but I'll help you. Uh, but I never got to <laughs> put nice my teeth around it. I woke up before, or the dream ended before I could get my teeth around it. I, I, I would have thought that I could see intrinsic problems with it. That kind of combination of chocolate and biscuit would be all a kilter, wouldn't it? Oh, you'd end up chomping ages through the chocolate to get to the biscuit. Yeah, and then you just have a whole biscuit section, which yeah. would be a bit dry and a bit... It bad, would be bad, dry. Bad. Oh, you'd need a lot of water. Yeah, I hadn't yeah. thought about that. Imagine if you'd, you'd done a giant chunky one. Oh, oh that, that would have you been... Wouldn't even, you wouldn't be able to eat it, You wouldn't you? be able to eat you'd it. You'd have to no. get a chainsaw to that. And that's the thing. I'd have to open it outside and it would all be covered in flies. And yeah. uh, Perhaps giant Kit Kats aren't such a good idea. This dream thing did make me wonder whether we should try um, to be more of sending the uh, TQM Tulpa project and Sherlock Holmes because we kind of stopped sending. We we made it an individual pursuit rather than trying to project. That's Ma- true. Maybe we need to introduce some projecting. And by the way, Ben, annoyingly, we haven't got anything to report on the TQM Tulpa project of making Sherlock Holmes a real person rather than a fictional character. And after your kind of insistence last week, well, the last couple of weeks, I felt you'd been saying, get your finger out and do some Tulpa music. Oh, no, no. (laughs) It's my job as much as yours. I've just been lazy and I don't know how to fiddle. Well, I've had a little fiddle and I have come up with some music for the (laughs) TQM Tulpa project. No way. We have a bed. we We have a music bed, but then obviously we've got nothing to really talk about it. So... Should we just 
play a little bit of it and then and then once we've got something we can use it as a proper bed here is my tqm tulpa project i've called this track sherlock tulpa have a little listen is very Sherlockian it is a little bit mournful I can imagine him looking out across a moor yeah I was trying I was trying to channel the the kind of the inner Sherlock on the on the fiddle or violin oh and actually I have got a conclusion to that because you made me google that there is no difference between a fiddle and a violin uh okay uh that's disappointing just the word is associated with different styles of music I see I see yeah but yeah so um you know, it, it ain't Mozart's violin concerto, but it was fun doing it. I was going to say that's just as well because we don't want copyright claim, but I don't think Mozart can copyright claim. No, you're right if you do it yourself. Yeah. Not that I could even begin. <laughs> no, no, nor me, nor me. Uh, well, thank you very much. And just for that fiddling music, it is worth giving us a visit at uh, what is our address again? Which one? <laughs> Just for that fiddle music, it is worth giving us a visit at patreon.com forward slash TQM pod because now it appears we have to go and buy some more musical instruments. Yes, well, to be honest, mine was very synthesised. (laughs) I think you'll be able to hear from that. Some Um, garage band extensions. Yeah, yeah. And also, uh, yes, so this is uh, Patreons, I think we said last week. We're we're banking a few eps because of the summer, so... uh, they, uh, if you're a patron, you'll probably be able to access, well, you will be able to access this well ahead of when it goes out. So, uh, worth checking us out for that if you just can't wait another week. Excellent. And if you can wait another week, uh, give us a review anyway. Please, please do that. It really helps with the algorithms. Yes, it does. And, uh, yeah, and obviously, <laughs> you're not supposed to do this, are you? You're not supposed to overload people with promotional information so i'm not gonna say our facebook and twitter is at tqm podcast because that would just be an overload so i'm not gonna say that okay but what we could maybe do is think about that this evening about half past 10 11 and everyone will dream it yeah that's true and they'll wake up in the night going i really need to get onto facebook yeah, yeah. And send those guys a message. Yeah, well, you can do that as well. Um, yeah, well, if you've had any premonition dreams, let us know. That'd be good to know as well. Um, we will be back next week with more quantum mechanics weirdness. Night, night. Sweet dreams. <laughs> <laughs> the quantum mechanics.